Welcome to Sports and Society, episode 55. How are you doing today, Kyle? Doing pretty well. I'm, uh, you know, I was thinking I don't watch sports when I'm here at GSP and how different my perspective is on current events when I haven't watched anything. Hmm. Um, that it all comes just straight, straight from articles and news outlets and I don't watch any videos because I got to watch a 45 second ad before I watch any video. So I never make it through the ads to actually get to the video. Um, Oh my goodness, Kyle. (laughs) uh, But what's standing out for you? Well, I have to say, uh, first off, I was just thinking, as you were mentioning that, I was thinking about the fact that during college, I read a newspaper every morning. Uh, mm-hmm. And I haven't read like a physical newspaper in probably a year and a half at this point, which is a weird thing. Yeah, I think about that too. I, I did that in high school and college. I would literally stop by one of those newspaper dispensers on my way to high school every morning. Uh, hmm. Well, I'll also share just as a point of pride that I'm reorganizing my office at the moment. And so mm-hmm. I just happened to notice that right here next to me, I have my, uh, official commemorative ticket from Michael Jordan's final regular season home game with the Wizards. Um, so that's right. It was totally embarrassing for the Wizards. They honored him by giving 30 computers to an area elementary school. I was like, you got to be kidding me. That's the best you can come up with for the greatest player in the history of the NBA. 30 computers? What is that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Who was in that meeting? Seriously. <laughs> Surely there was one person sitting at that table that was like, I don't know, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Michael Jordan was like going into that game. He was like, you know what? I think I'm going to buy an ownership stock in the Wizards. They're going to be the team that I invest in moving forward. And then they did that. And they're like, never mind. I'm going to go ahead and move on down to the Hornets now. <laughs> That's bizarre. (laughs) Um, Oh, my. Well, well, speaking of NBA franchises, I can go off of that. Um, I was impressed to see that the Seattle Storm WNBA team had a Planned Parenthood night. Um, And I think it's interesting in the context of, I forget the owner's name now, of uh, the Thunder. Do you know his name? I do not, no. You know, so he was the one that, and this goes into our topic for this week, but moved the Seattle Supersonics, who was seen as somewhat of a staple in Seattle, and that it was um, even kind of a a liberal city like Seattle loved their NBA team quite a lot um, and moved them just for money. It's not that he was losing money in Seattle. It was just that um, he thought he could make more money in Oklahoma City, so he moved the team. And the Seattle Storm placed them, and they're considered one of the most embraced WNBA teams in the whole country. Hmm. Uh, and for them, I think, to have a Planned Parenthood night obviously makes the obvious political statement, but it also makes, I think, just more of a statement that, like, no, we're going to support, like, women's health because that's really freaking important. Uh, and we're going to go beyond the, the bull crap that's associated with this conversation. And we're going to let all our fans know and all these kids that come to our games say like, no, this is good. We stand by this. So kind of just a shout out to them. And it's just impressive on several levels. It's I, you know, I think the WNBA 
is an impressive organization in many ways. And it's not necessarily from these kind of things that make me feel that way, but more the small things like the number of um, uh, lesbian relationships that we've seen come out of the WNBA and that just the league hasn't felt the need to make a big deal out of that. And I think that that statement says a lot in and of itself, but they haven't, like there's been no retaliation against those players in any way uh, mm-hmm. that I know of. Um, mm-hmm. But then also I think that it's an incredibly transformative force in seeing the different types of womanhood out there in some ways. And this is yeah. me projecting in some ways, but that, there's not many other places that celebrate and uh, embrace the fullness of what it means to be a woman in American society like the WNBA does. And allow for the complexity of that. Exactly. And, and celebrate the complexity of that concept. Um, yeah, I agree. And I, I always admire the WNBA writers that, um, you know, it, it's, it's so hard for women's sports to get out from underneath the, uh, the really suppressing uh, blanket of like, whoa, they're actually good at sports. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah. and so I admire WNBA writers that just write about the sport, and like, there's no statements made. It's just it, this is great basketball. Um, so. But I'm I, they've done a I think a really interesting job of integrating the NBA as well. That we've seen uh, the NBA players on some level seem really engaged in the WNBA in a way that I wouldn't necessarily have expected to be the case. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm all for shots of NBA players on the sidelines at WNBA games. I think that's like I enjoy that. It does. Um, it interests me. One of the things that I find most enjoyable in all of sports is when these top competitors have this incredible admiration for one another. Like I know mm-hmm. we're supposed to like it when they hate one another, but there's this part of me that, like, when you see these, when you see Steph and LeBron. Uh, talking about how much they appreciate one another. And so I think that it just speaks that these NBA players are seeing these WNBA teams and they recognize great basketball and they enjoy that. Exactly. Well, speaking of great basketball, what do you think (laughs) of a UK center matchup? Well, I mean, after you guys lose um, to us in that (laughs) exhibition, it's going to be, it's going to be quite stellar. (laughs) Uh, I think UK's first ever basketball game was against Georgetown College. Um, and the final score was like 11 to 7. <laughs> I look forward to the day when center paints uh, center 82, UK 76 on the side of one of their buildings. Um, <laughs> um, I wonder how, I just wonder how much money center gets from that game. I'm intrigued as well. And to be honest, like from a competitive standpoint, uh, you couldn't have picked a better year as a small school to play UK. Uh, the class I've got coming in is nothing compared to what we're used to seeing at UK. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I might push back on that a little bit, but I don't want to talk UK recruiting right now. Well, let's be, but, let's be clear here. Kyle. You've got less than five top 10 recruits. It's worse than your past five recruiting years have been. So, yeah, I guess four is a down year. <laughs> um, 
But it's a, I think it's really exciting for those small schools, and I think it's I think it's really well played from UK to engage the local schools in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see nothing but good coming from it for them. Well, and it also makes me think of John Calipari's first game, and John Wall had to hit a game winner at the buzzer to beat Miami of Ohio. Mm-hmm. Like those those teams, like I mean, it'll be the first real game those kids at UK play together. Uh, and I would imagine center is going to start five seniors. You know, I'm in, I'm intrigued to know, like in your opinion, would it would center get more out of it? Like not necessarily from a money perspective, but I'd be intrigued to know what it would take for center to host that exhibition game. Some donor saying I'll pay 500 grand for this to happen. <laughs> I, which I imagine there's a donor that would pay 500 grand for that to happen. But um, I just like to see UK. I think, it, I think that'd be really good for UK on some level to play, like to see these incredible athletes playing in this small college gym. Uh, I don't, there's just something romantic about it in some ways. It's a, it's a Hoosiers moment. Yeah. It also makes me think of that year that UK was in the NAIA uh, <laughs> and they lost to, um, Oh, who'd they lose to? George Mason? I forget who they lost to in that. They lost in like the, the final way of the NAIA in front of like 3,000 fans. <laughs> <laughs> but had to be John Calipari's lowest moment. <laughs> well, I speaking of Midwest basketball, to make another transition for us here, um, mm-hmm. So Dan Gilbert, apparently there were a lot of talks about Chauncey Billups taking the role as president of basketball operations there. Now you said you didn't get a chance to read this article, but um, if I tell you that the average salary for a president of basketball operations in the NBA is 4 million a year, how much do you think that Dan offered Chauncey? (laughs) Uh, 1.2. Uh, well, I think they started at 1.5 and they bumped it up to two before Chauncey walked away and said, this is ridiculous. I think Chauncey really wanted to do it, too. I think he did, too. <laughs> All the stuff he was saying on air when it started to leak and the ABC pregame like had to address it, he was way more like – um, forthcoming than you would expect someone to be when that was being discussed while he still had a job with ABC. I mean, he was like saying things that are like, you know, if the opportunity's there, this is something all players dream about. And I think he really wanted to do it. And you have to think that Chauncey is one of the more likable um, personalities in the league, which is saying a lot. I think the league really values the people they like. So, it's a it's a fascinating turn of events and there's a couple parts of this that interest me one the fact that chauncey is now signed up to play in ice cubes big three basketball tournament yeah Uh, fascinating um also just how how is dan gilbert ruining this so much like i don't understand i he's not that important I, like how anyone could think they're that important. Um, I think it must just be, he must not have too much to do in the rest of his world. 
And so he's, this is where he wants to get engaged and it's really harming the team. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it reeks of so much that we hate that it's like almost hard to even comment on it. Uh, like, I really want to give him the benefit of the doubt on some level, but it's he just makes it so hard. In some ways, it's very hard. He's very similar to LeBron in that way. Like every time that he does something, that I'm like, all right. Uh, but apparently, like he, um, when what's his name, uh, the previous GM left, he essentially had some stipulations that he couldn't interview for a certain period of time. Uh, and so he missed several openings that he would have been potentially a fit for, um, which is just one of those things like, come on. I know that this is common in the corporate world on some level, but, but come on. Right. Oh. Um, so I saw a clip of somewhere or something comparing the ball family to the Kardashians. <laughs> and I don't know why it hadn't hit me just to say that. I think before we had described what he is up to and what we described is what the Kardashians have done. We just didn't say it. And so I just wanted to briefly point out that there was like, Oh yes, that is exactly what he's doing. Um, none of this is really about championships. None of this is about great basketball. This is just uh, 100% Kardashianism, uh, which is amazing that that's even like a, a worthwhile term. But, um, yeah, I mean, what they're doing is they're literally following the exact pattern that the Kardashians follow. Well, that's really interesting. It raises questions for me, um... Like, I know that our immediate reaction is just to wipe that off as this is a terrible thing. We shouldn't engage with it. And yet I think we're seeing that, like, that idea of branding and that idea of uh, that's how you make a living these days seems to be more and more prevalent. And so I wonder what, like, what does that say about us? And what is that, like, as a broader statement, um, where are we headed with all this? Mm -hmm. Well, and that's where I agree. I think it becomes like a, a relevant, necessary conversation is if if we care about the integrity of sports to any extent, then we got to come down on this, I think. And because I think it's bastardizing the NBA right now that the ten, nine of the top 10 headlines are about bar ball uh, in a summer league game. It's like, if this is what it's taking to get people to watch the NBA, then um, that sucks. <laughs> like, that's not cool. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's taken away from the game, I think. So in that way, it's, it's different than the Kardashians. Um, I would imagine someone that's really into fashion would say, you know, this is the Kardashians take away from the fashion world or something like that. But, um, yeah, I can, I'm willing to hate on it and what it takes away from the integrity of our sports culture. Yeah. Well, but at the same time, like, uh, so what you were going to comment, I think, on Cristiano Ronaldo getting a certain amount for every Instagram post. How is that different uh, from this other stuff? Uh, not that much different. Um, a, a, a fascinating part of bringing that up is 
Cristiano Cristiano Ronaldo was number two on that list. Uh, Selena Gomez num- was number one, and then number three, four, and five were three of the Kardashian girls. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it's not that different than him, um, other than I, it, the just bizarre comparison that. Um, I forget the the mother of the Kardashian family's name. What's her name? I don't um, know. Yeah, I don't know either. But that she was the one that crafted this, that it was like uh, this is her business and she's running a business and her business is to sell her kids. Uh, and that that's what's happening here. Whereas Ronaldo, you could say, is selling himself. Uh, I don't think he had like a matriarch or a patriarch figure saying this is how this is going to work. Um, and he's also one of the greatest athletes of all time. Um, I think maybe gives, <laughs> I don't know the right, right word here, but like credence or it gives him the right maybe to sell himself, whereas LeVar Ball hasn't done anything. Um, so in that way, I'm like, hmm. they're, they're just selling a product that's not real. All right. Well, I, I want to move on to gameplay then. And this is, I've been thinking a lot about this question this week because I've watched too many YouTube videos about these guys. Um, mm-hmm. But who would you rather, who do you prefer to watch play, Messi or Ronaldo? Well, let's start with I love watching both of them. Uh, I'm regularly just so impressed with how Ronaldo changes a game. Uh, I think you can say the same thing about Messi, but his, I feel like, are in spurts um, to some extent. And when I'm watching Ronaldo or two teams play and Ronaldo's on the field, uh, the magnetism he has on how the game is shaped and played, I think, is unmatched. Hmm. Um, On the other side of that, what Messi can do in those spurts is unmatched. Um, and I, I think Ronaldo has that same thing too. So like, they're not too far off on this, but, um, and the style of play that, that on the teams that Messi plays on, well, mainly just being Barcelona. So the way that the team uh, approaches the game is a little different than Real Madrid. Um, and I'm probably a little more partial to how Barcelona plays the game. Um, so in the context of their teams and their specific gifts, I, I would probably lean Messi. Um, but I love recognizing and watching how much of an impact Ronaldo has on the overall game. Hmm. It's hard because I think you're right. Um, but I do wonder how much of that is um, like he's has he done some of that by his own doing, like his own marketing how much of that has created this being that is Ronaldo now um, as in the effect on gameplay yeah so like his marketing of himself affects how the game is actually played I I think there's an argument to be made that that's possible that's true hmm. um, this, the fact that he is so often in the newspaper in a way that Messi is not in the newspaper means that when players see him in the lineup, it means more than when they see Messi in the lineup. 
that's a fascinating thought. I don't know if I've thought about it, but um, see, for me, I I just picture him getting the ball from behind midfield, and two and a half seconds later, a shot on goal is happening. And uh, you think about how hard it is to move the ball in a productive way in soccer sometimes, and that he can do that like 18 times a game. What that does to a defensive system is then it just completely destroys the, <laughs> the system. Um, um, but I, I'm with you that I, I think other players, like on game day when they know they're playing him, they kind of wake up and prepare with a different mindset. I wonder, um, like, so I'm interested in legacy because I, like, long term, I think no one can do with the ball what Messi can do with the ball. Like, Ronaldo can do incredible things, but he can't do what Messi can do. That's, I strongly believe that. Uh, And so, like, there's this question for me of what does that mean for, like, where are we going to look down these two in posterity? Uh, And I have to think that we're going to view Ronaldo as, like, you know, one of the five greatest players of all time, but he will never have the same mystique. I don't think that Messi has, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I think mystique is the exact right word for it. Isn't that no one knows who Messi is. Yeah. Which is how you can be one of the three most recognizable personalities on the planet earth, arguably in the history of humanity. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and still the public doesn't really know who you are. Uh, I, I don't know how that, that may be the most fascinating thing about Lionel Messi uh, is that we don't know him. Um, well, I mean, whereas I feel like I know way too much about Ronaldo. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with that sentiment. Although I will say, I think, the thing that is the most mesmerizing about Messi and the thing that for me, um, that is a huge question of how do we know so little about him, but it's secondary to the question of how on earth does a human being do what he does on the football pitch when he decides he wants to do something? Yes. Um, and how, how is someone so much better than everyone else in the most popular game in the world? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, his greatness is even more great than most greatness uh, <laughs> when you take in, like, the odds uh, or the, the percentage. I mean, there's, you know, two and a half billion people that play the game of soccer. There's probably 500 million people on this planet that are really good at it. There's probably 50 million that wish they could play professional soccer. And yet we talk about one person <laughs> being so much better than everyone else and even better than the top 0.001% of soccer players on the planet. He's like three times as good as most of them. Um, it, it can really get into that phenomenalism stuff, um, which is cool to think about. Uh, well, I will say I'm intrigued, been intrigued by uh, Lukaku is moving to Manchester United, and it looks like Rooney is moving to back to Everton, which I think is a fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, on two levels, one just Rooney moving back is fascinating, but also apparently uh, Chelsea thought they had Lukaku, uh, and they apparently messed it up, which is a fascinating turn of events because Chelsea's kind of made every decision right in the past twelve to eighteen months, so. 
I wonder what this means. If you're an Everton fan, are you thrilled by this? Or are you like, we don't need your charity? I think you're thrilled by it because you're getting 90 million pounds or whatever for Lukaku, which you can turn around. And for a club like Everton, that's you've never had that kind of wealth of money to spend on other players. Right. Um, I think I think they they're always going to be the team that thrives. I think with Kevin Morales, who wouldn't make it at any of the other four, but when you put him on Everton, he can change a game. Is Rooney from Liverpool? I have no idea on that. You know, I might look that up real quick. Um, I mean, I know he came up through Everton. Um, but while we're talking about this and you're looking it up, I'll just say I'm just thrilled that Arsenal has signed Lacazette. Um, we've been wanting that striker for years, and to finally get him is exciting. And I can only hope that leads to us holding on to Ozil and Sanchez over the offseason. Although Sanchez, if I'm being honest, and I know that I shouldn't feel this way, I wouldn't miss Sanchez very much. Yeah, I was getting ready to ask you. As soon as you said that, I was like, do you really like Sanchez? I've never heard you say like a full blast compliment of him. It's always slightly backhanded. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the guy is incredible, and I have to thank him for what he did this past year. But I don't feel like he's the kind of person that I would want to play with. Um, mm-hmm. And so it makes me wonder how what his role on the team as a whole is. I think when we start, when we had like, a month and a half of bad results. He contributed to that through his negativity. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, I want to cheer for on some level. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's, that's a very unpopular hot take on Alexis Sanchez. <laughs> uh, Rooney is from Liverpool. Hmm. Uh, he was signed by Everton when he was 12. That's, man, that's such a different world, isn't it? Yeah, and he was with Everton until he was 21. So he spent nine years of his life with Everton. Um, uh, also, what always stands out to me, and we should add this maybe with Messi, Rooney's 5'9". Yeah. That that's incredible, and that's where Ronaldo maybe has an edge that they don't have. Um, Rooney and Messi are not going to win many balls out of the air, <laughs> whereas Ronaldo is like one of the best in the world out of the air. Yeah. Hmm. Well, anyway, I we yeah. talked a couple of weeks ago about potentially discussing the body issue that. ESPN puts mm-hmm. out. Um, I just, I'm intrigued to know what your thoughts are on this. Yeah, I'm intrigued by your thoughts too. <laughs> uh, I don't pay much attention to it myself. Uh, the very first issue that came out, I remember being fascinated by it. Um, and I, I guess just a appreciating or being interested in the the progressivism that was associated with it or just the forward thinking or even kind of the fringe manner in which it approached sports. Um, And so I think I really appreciated those parts of it. And I think I still do appreciate those parts of it 
without being interested in the content of it. Um, so I don't know. It's impossible not to see the photos if you go to ESPN because when the issue comes out, they're on the front page for like three weeks. Um, <laughs> and I have briefly heard commentary and conversations on like the appropriateness of it and is it um, about um, sex in a provocative way or does it like cross a certain line? Um I have never, ever really <laughs> sensed that from it, but I also can't deny that um, that's a, a conversation that's an extremely in-depth that I don't know if that's the conversation we want to have right now, um, but just recognizing that that's an element to the body issue. Um, maybe those are some of my initial thoughts right now. I don't know. What do you, what do you have to add? Kind of a very similar thing that I, on some level... I really appreciate it because I think, especially when we juxtapose it to how we usually view women's bodies in sports, um, yeah, i.e. the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Exactly. Uh, like when we juxtapose it to that, I find it um, really empowering. And uh, I think the athletes involved in it really enjoy it to some level. Uh, mm-hmm. And so like – really it doesn't bother me except on the level of um, I've, I worry that we as a society think about the body too much. And so this is just another example of that, even if it's a much healthier example of that fixation than what we normally see. Right. Yeah. It makes me want to call Stephen and ask him about the, a classicist perspective on the aggrandizement of a professional athlete's body uh, and how, you know, this is just a digital version of building a statue to our great athletes, Mm. you know, just putting them out in front and gazing or gawking or um, staring at them. Um, But yeah, I agree with you is I, I, I've never heard an athlete hate on it. Um, Those that are involved with it always seem to love it and like be really proud to be a part of it. Um, which maybe that shouldn't always be used as weighing in on the goodness or badness of something, but um, it's an element. Well, I mean, I have to say that just like when I was flipping through ESPN's homepage this week and um, come to find, you know, the U S women's national hockey team on there, uh, mm-hmm. the, my immediate thought was that's a powerful statement. Um, mm-hmm. and I think they, to some degree must feel that way too, or else they wouldn't have done it, but it's just, uh, especially knowing what they've been through with all their pay stuff. It's a, it's a reclaiming of themselves, I think, to some degree. Right. Makes me think too, I need to look back. Uh, I think it was the English women's rugby team did a nude photo shoot. Do you remember that? That sounds right, yeah. And I think, if I remember rightly, they got just totally shellacked over it. Yeah, they got pretty slammed in it Um, by some. There were others who found it to be incredibly inspiring. I was probably one of them. Um, um, But I need to look back at that because it was several years ago, and I don't know if I was thinking about it (laughs) in a sports and society lens at the time. So I wonder what I think of it now. (laughs) Um, well, uh, 
Sergio wore his green jacket to Wimbledon. Is that cool or is that lame? I, it's hard for me to find Sergio lame. Uh, he's worked so damn hard for that thing. I'm, I say go for it, man. Where, wherever you want to go. <laughs> you want to come yeah, over to dinner at my house? And that's, I'm cool with that, man. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm on the same side of that. As I, I see when he has that on, I just see a ton of hard work. Um, and so I'll, I'll hopefully always respect hard work. <clears throat> Oh, man. You got anything else on your mind this week? No, I think I'm good there. All right. Well, uh, tell me what's going on in the cricket world. Well, um, two things real quickly. Uh, If you go to any cricket website right now, you're bombarded with stories about Joe Root. who is featuring in his first test match as captain of England, Hmm. uh, which in the cricket world, that's a big deal, rightly or wrongly. Um, Nonetheless, it's a big deal. And he's so young, he's 26. um, Hmm. And in his his debut, uh, England was getting slammed. Um, This is in a test match. They were, I think they were like 75 for four. At lunch on the first day, which is horrible. I mean, like really, really just getting absolutely killed. Uh, and he came out and batted after lunch and went for 184. Hmm. Uh, uh, 184 not out. Um, so he batted the rest of the afternoon. Um, so it was just like it was an impressive feat by him. And he seems to be handling all the pressure of being England's captain pretty well so far. But it's also paired with a friend of mine sent me a video. He was there. Um, He's a member at Lords, which means he gets to go into the pavilion. <clears throat> and <laughs> it may be one of the most astounding, like, throwbacks of, like, I cannot believe we still do shit like this. <laughs> but so when you're a member at Lords, you get a tie, uh, a necktie. And when the batsmen, the English batsmen come off of the field, to walk to the locker room, they have to walk through the pavilion where all the Lords members are having drinks and cigars. Uh, and they walk through the dining room or whatever, where all the uh, members are standing and sitting and they're like applauding them and patting them on the back. And I'm just like, what in the hell is this? How is this still a thing? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty fascinating. Um, <laughs> But it was like a cool video to get from your friend all at the same time. Um, the other uh, main story from cricket uh, this week is that uh, the Australian Cricket Association representing the players is going on strike as of today. Uh, so 230 professional cricketers, women and men, uh, are on strike as of this morning in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's significant for all the reasons any strike is significant. So the Cricket Association apparently is not paying these guys and women enough, uh, especially when they go on tours, they feel, hmm. um, and that the revenue sharing isn't fair, uh, essentially. Um, the other side of it is, uh, well, there's two other sides of it. The first is, I think, um, there's a statement from Greg Hunt, who's the Minister for Sport in Australia, He said, it would be unthinkable that in the end we wouldn't have a full team. I do not see either the players or the administration returning to the late 70s where we had a second-rate team. 
The players love playing for Australia. Cricket Australia knows this is not just fundamental to sport. It is part of our national identity, uh, meaning the government is threatening to get involved in the mediation, <clears throat> which is pretty fascinating to think about. <laughs> just to casually drop from a government minister, like, oh, yeah, we're going to get involved in your labor dispute uh, over sports. Like, pretty fascinating. Um, hmm. But then lastly, um, England says they will not play in the ashes if this dispute is not worked out by November. Um, which I don't think that is about solidarity. They're kind of pitching it that way, but I don't think it's about solidarity as much as they're just like, that's not a good business decision for us. <laughs> I, I think you're right. Um, so. hmm. I'm, I get it. This is interesting that this is kind of the first time this has come up because it's got me wondering... You know, I think there's been a new infusion of money into cricket in many ways. That's what this is about. And so that I think that we're probably seeing these guys paid it the same way, late men and women both, paid it the same way that they were 10 years ago before this infusion of money happened. Um, and so I'm kind of surprised it hasn't happened before, I guess. Exactly. Well, that's what uh, their A-team is getting is supposed to leave tomorrow for a tour of South Africa, and every match sold out. Uh, hmm. And so, like, that was the leverage they needed. Um, like, if we're going to go on this tour and be away from our families for three months um, and you're paying us what we got 10 years ago, then this isn't fair anymore. I will. Uh, <laughs> I meant, meant to bring this up earlier, but I think this is an interesting time to bring it up. Is just that um, there's been a – I read an article this week about how the number of home runs in baseball this year is way higher than it's ever been like ever. Yeah. Yeah. And like from the point of in the steroid era, we we're talking about 1.15 per game and we're now talking about 1.33 if my numbers are right. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's a huge jump. Uh, but the point of the article I was reading was that no one is talking about this. Mm -hmm. um, and that really that's an indication of the fact that baseball is not that interesting to a lot of people right now. Um, which especially framed against this thing that cricket has managed to reinvent itself um, really does not bode well for baseball on some level. Yeah. I think the baseball thing is really simple is MLB realized that in the steroid era, MLB was doing great. <laughs> and so <laughs> how do they recreate that just without steroids? Well, you juice the ball. Um, so it's a different ball this year. It's a little smaller in it. It's a little more um, tightly wound. So uh, they made minuscule changes to a ball and their revenue goes up, which is a pretty fascinating thing. Um, so, yeah, they were cool with the steroid era. They just can't publicly shoulder the steroids. Mm -hmm. And so they just steroid the ball instead. But I don't know that it's had the same effect that they would have hoped it's had. Well, it's not, a good, it's not as good as of a story. They're missing yeah. the steroids. That's the story. <laughs> oh, my. They need something that touches, like, the social thread that weaves through it on. Mm-hmm. You need the U.S. government to get involved and say, we're going to investigate whether U.S. baseball is doping the baseballs. <laughs> That's a fascinating idea is to prompt the federal government to investigate you. Like, Please investigate us. It'll sell really well. 
Um, but for me, I think when I was talking to somebody else earlier this week about it, like for me, it goes back to cricket has in many ways, I'm sure there are people at Lords that are not happy about this, but they've been forced to acknowledge that the center of the cricketing world is no longer in England. It's now in India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, uh, mainly. And so on some level, I, I don't know what it would take for baseball to realize that the center of the baseball universe is going to have to move to Latin America at some point for this to really yeah. grow again. Yeah. Yeah. I just watched a, a documentary on Robinson Cano this week. And um, this is what I do when I don't have a TV to watch sports is I watch documentaries on Robinson Cano. <laughs> um, but that's exactly what he was arguing is he's, he's kind of championing or campaigning to uh, kind of create some channels by which Major League Baseball can uh, more ardently and more fairly um, have, a, have a presence in Latin America because right now it's kind of like wild, wild west stuff. Hmm. Um, and the money they're sending there, it goes to like pinpoint persons or it's um, they're sending just enough to get what they want out of it. Um, so it's it's pretty in, unjust right now how they're going about it. Um, hmm. But Cano's pushing back against that a little bit. Um, so I've we'll always see. liked him, and I don't really know why. But I, I love him. He's one of my all-time favorites. Um, that guy just loves baseball. I always feel like second basemen are overlooked on some level as well. So I like that he was a star as a second baseman. Yeah, absolutely. But uh huge week in the Tour de France. Yeah, absolutely huge. Um, uh, right now, or it may have just ended, the biggest stage yet uh, going on. Uh, I'm uh, waiting to view it on the TiVo this afternoon, although I don't have TiVo, so I'll just be re-watching the replay of the stage. Uh, <laughs> uh, Frumas look strong, but we haven't really seen everything yet. So... I did see before I, we came on and uh, recorded this this morning that Garrett Thomas crashed out this morning. Um, oh, no. So that's a big deal. Um, AG2R Le Mondial went hard on a downhill and sky, the sky crashed out. So that's a big loss for Froome. Um, so we'll see. Well, yesterday was a great breakaway win, but the story of the first week of the tour by far has been – that Sagan won stage two, um, and then on stage three, uh, there was a crash involving him and Cavendish uh, that wound up with Cavendish breaking his shoulder. Um, what, what do you call it? The scapula is the shoulder yeah. blade. Um, uh, and so he's now out of the tour. And so after a bunch of heat, the ASO and UCI kicked Sagan off of the tour which in my opinion was just the worst thing that they could have done. Um, they did it to kind of tone down the craziness of the sprints, but in my opinion, Cavendish went for a gap that wasn't there uh, and Sagan closed a gap uh, because that's what sprinters do. And all of these sprints are crazy. Just it so happened and this time somebody crashed and that's what made it. Uh, in that same sprint where where Cavendish went down, the guy that won, Arno DeMar, 
made what was a hugely technically illegal move, forced one of his opponents to break check, uh, and that's how he went about winning. So it's just um, – it's sprinting and cycling is a crazy thing, and the Tour de France was just went crazy when they kicked Sagan off. Do you think any reprimand was warranted? Sure. I mean, like he did, like he was technically in the wrong. He clo- he deviated from his line in a way that uh, was probably a little unsafe, although every writer does it all the time. So I, in my opinion, I probably wouldn't have done anything, but if they mm-hmm. wanted to, I would have been perfectly fine with a relegation and points deduction in the green Jersey competition. Um, yeah. But uh, to go further than that is just, uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it looked like, I mean, I I felt like his elbow went out. And I felt like he extended towards Cavendish to some extent, which I guess you're saying is like the deviation from his line. Well, no, so... um... And so we, you can go back. If I would encourage anyone who's listening to go back and look at the frame by frame, because uh, it's pretty clear to me that Cavendish makes contact with his like hind legs or whatever, starts to go down. Sagan feels the contact and puts out his elbow as a stabilizing force. Mm, his elbow, yeah. I think, and no, there's no one who I think is arguing that the elbow actually makes contact with Cavendish. Um, and so the deviation from the line was that they were like Sagan wanted to be on DeMar's wheel. And so he moved from the left to the right. And in that process, he closed the gap that Cavendish was hoping to go through. Um, But I, I I would push back and say that that elbow was after the fact that was largely after Cavendish was already going down. I think, Cavendish's response supports that, what you're saying. Mm-hmm. As in, I think he was, he kind of went, fell back on the adage that racing's racing. Yeah. Um, he wasn't happy about it, and he didn't come out and say, like, Sagan didn't do anything wrong, but he also didn't say Sagan, like, you know, it, it wasn't a complete um, dismissal type of response from Cavendish. Well, no, and I, even like Andre Greipel, who after the stage was furious, and Andre's another sprinter, for those of you that don't know, he then tweeted afterwards, was like, sometimes I speak too quickly after viewing the video, there was nothing wrong with this. Mm-hmm. And so I think that those guys know what's going on much more than we do. Uh, and so it's really... Um, plus, there's uh, for any of you wanting to see what Cavendish's sprint is like, you can check out the Olympics last year when he won a silver medal and totally just looked down at some folks and then ran into them a moment later. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, absurd. it's the most ridiculous thing I've seen in a long time. Um, but they've all done this. They, they, they head butt each other. They push each other. And the ones that do it best and most subtly are the ones that win the race. Yeah. But getting rid of one of the most popular riders in the tour seems like a really stupid move. It is, and so my I think piece is on this to some degree, but I just think the whole first week of the tour has been not well done. Um, it's mm-hmm. not like this is the first time this has happened either. So, right, yeah, it's people do weird things when the whole world's watching. <laughs> they do indeed. It's like oh. hard to be rational. 
Well, especially like if you went on Twitter right after the crash, the the number of people that were shouting down Cavendish far outweighed the number of people that were leaping to his defense. Um, mm -hmm. And that's large part because, you know, they had this video with the elbow, but it was before you kind of wound it back and saw that what was happening. And so uh, I think that they were, f they were forced to make a decision. They didn't follow protocol in the decision. So they actually, um, Sagan's team appealed it to the court of arbitration for sport because the UCI didn't follow their own regulations, which require them to ask both riders for their uh, experiences of what happened. They never went to Sagan to ask for his experience before disqualifying him. Yeah. Um, so it just was handled so poorly in addition to everything else. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, makes it, it diminishes the rest of the race. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, you want to talk about subsidizing sports? Yes, let's do it. I think that this was brought up for me by this Gladwell podcast. So, what are, what kind of were your thoughts after this? After you listened to it, Kyle? Uh, I had I had heard about this before uh, the episode was released. I had like heard a teaser about it, or someone had mentioned it to me, and so I was aware that it was coming out. And I didn't think I would listen to it. Um, I felt like I had I got the gist of it from the teaser, even. I was like, oh, yeah, all that makes sense. Uh, so I didn't think I would be that emotionally involved or affected <laughs> by the podcast. Um, but the story goes, and you can fill in gaps, is uh, Gladwell is in Los Angeles, and he recognizes one day on a run, as he's running on this tiny little dirt path next to a busy road, that on the other side of him is Bel Air Country Club, or was it Los Angeles Country Club? One of the uh, LA Country well, Clubs. Yeah. Uh, and it's surrounded by a 15-foot-high fence with barbed wire on it. And on the other side are a couple hundred acres of golf course right in the heart of Bel Air. Um, and so his question is, why can't I run on that beautiful park on the other side of this fence? Uh, and so as he digs into this, he comes to find out that what could be a public space uh, throughout LA in that these golf courses uh, could be public spaces are these private clubs and they have a complex history on how they've maintained their right to use up that much land and that much resources uh, in Los Angeles where land is so valuable. Uh, and so what he ends up finding out is that via a few certain channels or what he called gifts from God, uh, and very Gladwellian <laughs> hyperbole um, that essentially what these clubs are getting is about a $70 million a year subsidy um, from public taxes and that they're paying around $200,000 a year in taxes. And uh, by all legal definitions, they should be paying a property tax that comes in around $70 million a year. Well, not not legal. Like what they're doing is legal, but by right. all yeah, yeah. all yeah. practical definitions, yeah, uh, uh, a more pragmatic or what does he call it? extra met metaphysical context. <laughs> the guy just annoys the crap out of me. But yeah, 
I love thinking about how much members of LA Country Club do not give a crap what Malcolm Gladwell no, thinks about them. No, they don't care at all. <laughs> <laughs> but then I also think about all the liberal celebrities that are members there. Uh, and you can see the list online of who belongs to which country club in LA and plays golf. Uh, and the list is like a who's who of anti-Trumpites. Um, and so I wonder when they're paying their $250,000 in member fees every year, um, if they're thinking about this conversation, but, uh, I have m many more thoughts on it, but, um, well, I wonder you here at the beginning. Yeah, I, I wondered from your perspective too, like you've lived out there and so you can speak to the fact that there are no parks in LA, um, like that these are the only green spaces around in many ways. Correct, yeah. Yeah, Griffith Observatory is the only place you can really go within pro LA proper. Um, but I love that he made the point that most of LA can't get there. So if you don't live within five miles of Griff Griffith, like, I mean, also, like, I lived uh, 20 miles from Griffith. It would have taken me an hour and a half to get there. Hmm. Like, and that's that's good. Like, if I made it to Griffith from Santa Monica in an hour, I would be, like, thrilled. <laughs> um, and you'd have to spend an hour in your car on freeways, like, and find parking. And uh, it's not like you just stroll to your local park. That just doesn't happen. Um yeah, and they, I think LA always touts that they have beaches and then you have the mountains, but same thing. Like if you don't live right on the coast, it's hard to get to the beach. And if you don't live near the mountains, it's hard to get to the mountains. So yeah. the, the um, geospatial imagination of LA is much different than most cities because driving is so hard and so difficult there. So it is. It was just fascinating to me to see how they've kind of manipulated the system, including to have an amendment on the state constitution that helps them lower their property taxes. That that it's all just a uh, a system that's set up to be to favor these golf courses that ninety nine point nine percent of people will never get a chance to be on. Right. <laughs> well, and, and what what about Prop thirteen? That was pretty fascinating too. I thought. Yeah. Well, explain um, explain your understanding of that to us. Um, so I listened to this part like a week ago, but let's see. So, <laughs> Prop Thirteen says that any property owned pre nineteen seventy, I believe, mm -hmm. or in the seventies, um, had a uh, a substantiated tax rate that would not move. Uh, until that property exchanged hands entirely. Yeah, so it wouldn't be, it, their tax assessment would not change. So they would be taxed on whatever the assessment was in that time period. Right. So if you owned your home pre-1970, you're paying the same tax rate that you paid in 1969. Yeah. So you could uh, have a house in Hollywood that is worth $2 million now, but you're paying property taxes on 20000 because that's how much it was assessed for. Right. Before. Right. And so this is one of the loopholes that these country clubs uh, can jump through is that they claim that uh, ownership has never changed. But uh, where that gets problematic is that on ownership of a country club is primarily with the members and the membership changes a lot. 
And so I think he said 20% of Bel Air Country Club's membership today was a member before 1970. And so by most practical thinking human definitions that is a change in ownership but then he goes into the whole philosophical debate that if you change one board on a ship is it still the same ship and then if you change every board on that ship is it still the same ship uh, if you're changing them one at a time uh, and so he uses this to show that it's a unsolvable philosophical dilemma which is why it's such a cool dilemma and like the Greeks hashed it out, you know, 2,000 years ago. And philosophers have been dealing with it for <laughs> millennia, and they can't solve it. And yet, <laughs> the minds of Bel Air Country Club had no trouble solving that problem. <laughs> um, and so the philosopher he talks to uh, uses that phrase, extra metaphysical context. And the pragmatic um, nature of it is that well, if we, if we put it in this context of what is our country club and we're doing it this way and we're the ones that uphold the system, then essentially what you are talking about is an aristocracy. Yeah. Uh, and so you arrive at the definition of aristocracy completely manifested in these country clubs, uh, which I think is what we're talking about when we're talking about the trouble of public subsidies and public sports. Well, yeah, and it's hard because it's not like we're – it's not like – that Los Angeles County is paying these country clubs seventy million dollars to be right. there. So, like, if they were doing that, no one would be in favor. Like, they would that would get voted down immediately. Right. But because of the fact that it's really this tax break, so it's like it's like this was never Los Angeles County money to begin with, even though they have a you know made not legal at this point, but a legitimate mental claim to $70 million that could be used on a bunch of different things um, were in essence subsidizing those golf courses. When I, I wanted him to give me the number for what it would be if every golf course in LA County did that. Mm -hmm. He doesn't give that number. Um, so you figure LA country club and maybe Bel Air and maybe a couple of others right there in the heart of the Hills uh, would be all around 70 million. And then there's probably 50 other courses that would be, you know, between 20 and 50 million. So then you're talking about revenue of billions, yeah, um, which is extremely substantial. Um, and so for me, what was interesting and then to maybe flip it to the other side of this, subsidies conversation is the argument that so many make for when taxes are increased to pay for something like a stadium is they make a similar argument or like the logic works in a certain way that they're saying this isn't money we're taking from something else this is money we're generating by incorporating or building a new tax structure uh, and so that's their argument is like, we're not taking money from public works. We're just generating a new tax revenue. We're just taking um, money from you. Exactly. Uh, which, pardon me, that's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty messed up. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what an insane logic. Like only an aristocracy would operate under logic like that. Uh, I mean, that's like draconian type of taxing. If, if you think that's how public works work, um, you have a messed up view of what a community is. That's really, 
it's fascinating because I think this is happening on a much larger level than we even know. So I, I was interested. I was having a conversation with our city manager here in Roanoke, and our neighbors Salem, who, uh, if you're familiar with uh, Parks and Rec, uh, we are Pawnee and they are Eagleton. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, we don't always get along with one another. Uh, yeah. And so there's this part of me that's pride that I'm like, I wish those the minor league baseball team in the town. I wish it was the Roanoke Red Sox and not the Salem Red Sox. Uh, and he pushed back and said, yeah, but then we'd have to pay the subsidies that Salem is paying. And I was like, wait a minute. This is a this is an A-league baseball team, and the city is paying subsidies for this, um, which is just like – so I, it's it's far more prevalent than I think we even know. Yeah. Yeah, and part of my way into this conversation, I was going to ask you, so like what if um... – Roanoke wanted a, a minor league baseball team or that maybe let's just, I don't think they would, but like a professional baseball team wanted to relocate to Roanoke. Um, how, how would you want the subsidies to work out or would you want no subsidies or um, I don't know. What do you think is a good route or a better route or is there even a good route? So let's be clear here. I'm not like opposed to subsidies as a rule. I think that they obviously have a role in many things. I think that we've taken most subsidies and put them in places where they shouldn't be, including things like corn and uh, oil, um, things like subsidizing green energy. Absolutely. Uh, there's got to be a limit to it, but whatever. Um, mm-hmm. The problem for me is that the trade-off so, you know, perhaps the most infamous of these stories recently, well, there's been a number, um, but one of the more infamous in the NBA world was the owners of the Bucks essentially holding Milwaukee hostage for $250 million from the state um, to build a new stadium up there. And the governor yeah. of Wisconsin is claiming that they're going to see a three-to-one return on investment for this. Yeah. Um, uh, everything I've seen suggests that that's kind of a farce. Um, mm-hmm that really there may be that much money that goes into this stadium, but that's not new money. That's money that's coming from other things. That's already uh, economic activity. That's already happening in the area. It's now just being redirected through a new $250 million thing. Right. That's, that's entertainment money that would be going towards theaters and other uh, things in town. That's not, uh, that are not there. Um, and so I think that it's really, uh, if they wanted to come to Roanoke, I think I would say, uh, if you pay your way, we'd love to have you. Right. I might even suggest that we won't make you pay property tax, but you have to build your own stadium. Right. Yeah. And from all the research I've ever looked at on this over the years, um, uh, Dennis Coates is the one that. I think kind of wrote like a seminal piece on this um, and he published it a few years ago and their ultimate conclusion, they have many conclusions, but there was a whole team of uh, economists working on this that they found a net $10 loss per capita personal income hmm. of everyone in the city um, when the city subsidizes and builds a stadium. Um, and so I think what his argument points to is that like 
it is very possible to argue that it's like a positive for the city um, to have a sports team. And a lot of that would be in like the qualitative way, maybe. But if you're going to argue as the Wisconsin governor is that this is going to be good economically for every uh, every single person in Milwaukee or Wisconsin, then you're just not, that's just not true. Uh, and so then to use that to bolster your logic or reasoning for a public subsidy is you're standing on, you know, uh, not very substantial ground. Well, I think I agree. Like the Olympics are, you know, probably the biggest thing that comes about is that, you know, we've seen that a lot of cities don't want to host the Olympics anymore because we've seen that these cities don't make money off of them. But mm -hmm. that's not to say there's not um, a narrative advantage to it. And I think that this has become very uh, true in my world is that you see that cities that have a positive narrative do well and cities that don't don't do well um mm -hmm. so i mean i think this is for me this is what worries me about louisville is that all this stuff at the university of louisville is contributing to a negative narrative about the city of right. louisville um, right it doesn't have an immediate effect but it does you know if a business is thinking about locating there they're not going to locate there if a person is thinking about taking a job in louisville they're less likely to do that um, right those things matter in a way that make a difference, but right. to make this argument on, um, you know, just the return on investment. And so that's why, you know, I'm willing to make things happen. Like, I think, you know, this is the part that kind of bothers me a lot of this is that there's a lack of transparency. Um, yeah. I look at, you know, the Cincinnati stuff. Um, I don't know how much property tax the reds and the Bengals are playing for their stadiums. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to guess it's not very much. I'm yeah. also going to guess that they're not paying very much for police officers, that they're not paying very much for uh, water and sewer access, that there are all these things that they work at with cities that, that make it work. Um, and I'm kind of okay with working a lot of that stuff out, but what I'm not okay with is just handing them kind of a check and saying, we trust you to do a lot of this stuff. Right. Similarly, I'm with you in that, like, I believe in that narrative and that these narratives of our cities are important and valuable, not just economically, but also just in, like, sense of community and the stuff that's, like, harder to measure. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm a big believer in that, and I'm even willing to put money behind it, uh, even if I can't measure it, just, like, out of belief and faith. Like, I'm absolutely willing to go there. Furthermore, if that's the case, and if one does adopt that argument, which is not a very popular or sellable argument, um, I'm like, I'm with you. I'm, I am willing to subsidize this stuff, um, maybe even to a large extent. Uh, just don't feed me a false narrative. Um, secondly, do something that is indicative of your faith in the same argument that's more on the qualitative side of things and do something like, you know, I, I always think of when I was a kid or a teenager, we could get what were called top five seats at Riverfront Stadium. So $5 for top five rows. Um, why not do a top 10 and sell them for a dollar? You know, like if this is really for the public, don't just make the economic benefit part of what you're saying is for the public. Like give away tickets every night. And give away a lot of them. Fill your stadium, you know? 
like um, really show me that you believe that this team is good for this city uh, as opposed to just telling me I'm going to get like three to three to one return on my investment or something stupid like that. Well, and it's, uh, and additionally, don't hold us for ransom. Um, like if well, you're yeah, going to hold us criminal, if you hold us for ransom, then all of a sudden, all of the positive energy that you've put into the city, all of the positive narrative goes away. And so then it's not worth me to give anything to you. Um, once you've shown that you don't care about this place. And that's the other part of it that's frustrating is like, I'm similar to you in that the idea of just like a few people making these kinds of decisions is really frustrating. You know, that it's just like some, some folks in a boardroom hashing all this out. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I felt when it was, this was a big debate in Cincinnati when they were building the football stadium because they raised, they raised sales tax in Hamilton County, but they didn't raise Mm -hmm. it in Campbell County. And so I live, I grew up six minutes from the Bengals stadium and my sales taxes didn't increase at all. But someone that potentially lived 45 minutes from the stadium, their sales tax went up. Uh, And so that that's messed up. Um, But just that it was a few people making those decisions is like, doesn't seem fair if you're talking about public subsidies. Um, and indeed it came up for a vote, but even just like how the, the vote was crafted, um, didn't seem very democratic. Well, yeah. And I think this is what makes me happy is that I think we've seen several places recently that have, um, put out referendums on this and said, we want the public to vote on this. Uh, and that I think you know, and so if the public on some level votes to fund a hundred million dollars for a stadium, okay, we'll do it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I do want that to be a public decision and not one that's being made behind closed doors in city hall. Right. Yeah, I'm with you. Furthermore, I want to be able to vote on the architecture. <laughs> that might be a step too far, Kyle. We're not going to get that. I hate both of the stadiums that were built in Cincinnati. Um, so they're so stupid, but whatever. Um, this is amazing. So I just pulled this up because I wanted to. What there was a big team that I think had a referendum on the stadium recently, but I'm looking at this now. Here in Virginia, there's a Prince William County, which is in Northern Virginia, uh, had a ballot referendum. Uh, and I don't even know that I know the f- amount of it. The details are what just boggles my mind is that the ballot referendum was for $35 million in bonds for a single A baseball team. That's amazing. Whoa. Wow. Yeah, you're right. We don't know all that's going on on this there. It's just, yeah. Mm. Whenever you see numbers like that, you know that powerful people are paying attention and, Mm-hmm. working as hard as they can to keep it quiet. Uh, yeah, And that's really, I just want transparency on some level. I want the opportunity for us to know what's happening. Um, yeah. And we've seen like we, as the United States subsidize Olympic sports. Um, right. And I don't think anyone is upset about that. I'm sure there mm-hmm. are some people, but um, you know, and so I think that really that's, uh, there's no problem on a broad scale subsidizing sports 
we just want to know how and why and when it's not okay we want to be able to say it's not okay right yeah this is a much more moderate moderated tone than i thought we were going to take in this conversation i agree yeah uh, i was gonna i was prepared for some true vitriol here <laughs> I mean, but let's let's be clear. What's happening right now is ridiculous. The fact that we've subsidized new stadiums to the account of what I saw was three point two billion, but actually, after all is said and done, three point seven billion since the year two thousand. That's yep. that's untenable. Well, and I'm, I'm going to repeat my main point. I think is if you're really doing this for the love of sports and the love of your city, and that your city loves its sports then fill your stadiums, like <laughs> make the love of the game central. Don't like, don't bastardize it uh, by exploiting like economic loopholes and, and just don't sell me that false narrative. Well, and don't hold us for ransom. That's the biggest thing is don't move your damn team because you don't get a bunch of money play in that stadium. We know that you're making money. I think, what the Reds uh, made forty million dollars last year. The um, the average NBA team, I think, is making thirty to fifty thousand or million every year. Like mm-hmm. you can afford to make these new stadiums. Just just do it yourself. Exactly. Yeah, and something we come to a lot, I think, is the city-based ownership model. Mm-hmm. Um, how much promise there is in something like that. But. <sighs> at any rate well you want to hit me up with your I think yeah it's a nice segue I think I think that I think that I'm going to make an effort to spend more time attending public amateur sporting events I'm thinking that my time spent watching sports, which is pretty substantial, would be more worthwhile if I were watching folks in my community play a sport that they enjoy playing for free. I caught a few innings of a youth softball game the other night. Of course, the level of play was less than the College World Series, and it was not as impressive as an Aaron Judge home run. But it was fun. It was free. I was spending time in a public park, talking with some neighbors, and enjoying watching some folks play a game that is fun to watch and fun to play. Naturally, this proclamation is about making a point. It could be called posturing and self-aggrandizing and is maybe not all that sustainable. But I think I'm willing to say that I'm at least going to try it. The thought of doing something I love, that is watching sports and not being a party to overconsumption, greed, and exploitation sounds really pleasant. So look for me next week at Sports of All Sorts off Highway 64 near the junction. The adult men's indoor league opens with a banger as Mike's auto detail takes on the beer brawler. It should be an epic match. <laughs> Very good. Well, I have to say that uh, I'm lo- one of the reasons I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully our daughter playing sports is because that'll give me an excuse to actually go to these things, which I uh, – I feel a little weird going now when I don't have a connection to the people playing. <laughs> yeah, it is super weird. Yeah, but maybe we can normalize it. Maybe that's what we should Yeah, get a group of people uh, that just go to watch amateur sports. Yeah. Uh, I could uh, see, pick out your favorites. So you're going to root for, for Tom for this game. 
and Tom's yeah. not going to know what the hell is going on, but somebody's screaming his name and rooting for yeah. him. It makes me think of that scene in Goodwill Hunting where they go and watch the youth baseball game and they're like <laughs> cheering on their favorite player. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. All right, what do you got? All right. I love cycling, but it's a hard sport to love. It's not easy to watch, both in terms of logistics and access. It has a destructive history of doping. It hangs on by a shoestring financially. But I think that I think what bothers me most are the self-destructive decisions from the powers that be. This decision to kick Sagan off the tour is a great example. They didn't follow their own policy. They made a decision that had no precedence for a purpose that it won't help with, toning down sprint situations. Plus, they took their most popular and exciting rider out of the race. But even before that, this race has been fairly poorly constructed with stages that are too long and uninteresting. No one wants to watch 220 kilometers with the sprint finish. For every step to make it more accessible, like on-bike cams, we take a step back by not allowing teams to publish in-race videos. They can't figure out how to deal with the weather. They can't figure out how to organize safe races with motorcycles. I just want everyone to love everything about this sport. And I wish the powers that be could help with that. Maybe the only option is to start like a whole nother cycling organization. And just like scrap everything that's in place. I just think of all the bureaucracy that exists in cycling, how difficult it is to get through it. I mean, I just, the, there's no clarity on a lot of this stuff. And that's what I think bothers me most of all. And so like, you know, two people died last year from accidents involving motorcycles. And yet there were no changes made to allow for motorcycles to be safer on the course. And we saw it, destroy the chances of some riders at the Giro d'Italia just a few months ago. Right. Um, last year, you know, in the biggest race in the world, um, this, the finish on top of Mount Ventoux was just totally made into a shambles. And the three leaders on the road ran into a motorcycle because it got stopped by the fans because the organizers couldn't control the fans. This is, these <laughs> are just things you have to be able to do. If you want to run a sport, you have to be right. able to set up a race course that is not going to wind up in shambles. Right. And plus, we know what is interesting, and these 200-kilometer stages with the sprint finish, so this this year is the first year that the tour is broadcasting from the very beginning of the race to the end. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a big step. You know, it's now like instead of three hours and two and a half hours of coverage, we're talking about five hours of coverage. But... Right created nine stages where nothing happened in the first 150 kilometers. Why, right. why would you do that? Right. Anyway, I, there are things that make me hopeful, but every time we take a step forward, there's another step back. Yep. All right, mate. Cool. Good stuff. Well, you want to wrap it up there? Yep. Sounds good. All right, we'll come back next week, folks, where we may or may not have a moderated take on something that we probably were pissed off about before we started the episode. So uh, thank you for listening again. Always give us a like and follow. Uh, but thank you, Kyle. Thanks, man.